Up next, it's Outcasting. This edition was produced in March 2017. There are obvious reasons why LGBTQ history and culture aren't taught in schools. And it goes all the way from an approach by the school boards and by the faculty groups that are designing curricula to emphasize what's held in common between people. We don't like to talk about divisions. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Sharin. On this edition of Outcasting, we talk with Chris Hobson, an English professor at the State University of New York at Old Westbury on Long Island. Chris is a gay elder whose mother, the well-known writer Laura Z. Hobson, wrote Consenting Adult, a novel based loosely on her experience with Chris coming out and her own growth as she gradually accepted his gay identity. During this interview, Chris talks with outcaster Travis about what it was like to be a gay teenager in the 1950s, surviving psychotherapy, joining the movement, becoming an activist, his mother's book, Consenting Adult, and passing down gay history. Hi, Chris. Hello, Travis. Tell us about your early life. What was it like for you when you realized you were gay? And when was this? I realized I was gay at about the age of 14. I had already had my first sexual experience with a guy or with anybody else. And um, I kind of put the picture together for myself over the following months realized, you know, this is what I'm interested in, and um, was very disturbed by it as people were in that period. The period we're talking about now is roughly the mid-1950s. To be homosexual was, uh, at best, to be subject to a medical condition that was very disturbing. And at worst, of course, it was to be a sinner in hellfire, but I didn't have a religious upbringing or that kind of background, so I didn't experience that kind of thing. Once you realized your identity, what was the coming out process for you? When did that start? That happened sometime later. The initial thing that I wanted to do was to get cured. And I was already seeing a psychotherapist of some kind who didn't deal with this stuff, but I used her to persuade my mom to send me to a real psychotherapist. And that was not terrible, but certainly didn't result in any change. And during that period, I was still in high school, I came out to a few friends sometimes before sex and sometimes in a substitution for sex, but not in general. I didn't come out in general until uh, Stonewall itself. And that was years later. I was then 27 or so. Why did you want to go to psychotherapy? Initially, I imagined that with psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, I could become normal, as we said then. I had a couple of psychotherapists over the years, one in New York, one in Boston when I was there for college, 
And these were not, looking back on them, negative experiences. But I certainly didn't accomplish any change in who I was. And at a certain point, I said to myself, this is what I am provisionally. And I wasn't going to say this is what I am permanently, but for the moment, there didn't seem to be any sense at all in trying to make a change. So there I was, I was in my boat and I was going to have to row it and uh, keep it going as best I could. You wrote a fascinating essay called Surviving Psychotherapy, which was originally published in the early 1970s. Can you tell me about it? What I tried to do was to describe my experiences in psychotherapy, and I think to describe them in kind of the non-hostile way that I just talked about it to you. Uh, but all the same, to see the limits in the psychotherapeutic approach to being gay. And I told about the third and last psychotherapist an incident that occurred when I had a very brief affair with a woman. You know, every gay man had to do that then just to prove her, you know, who we were. And uh, it was nice enough. Uh, but he said, well, I see something has come out, right? So he was giving me very clear cues as to the direction that I should go in. And I discussed with him over the next couple of sessions that I had no regrets about that experience, but that I didn't think it was really the direction for me. And he was a little bit resistant to that. And so ultimately we parted ways, friendly enough. But that was part of the essay. And then I tried to suggest the sense that the movement itself had a therapeutic effect not that people went into it for therapy, they went into it for struggle, but the impulse to be publicly active and struggle also affects one's self-image and one's sense of self-worth so that people become more self-accepting through the act of simply doing that. And I closed off with a quote from Leon Trotsky about one of his old associates who had been in psychoanalysis for many years. And Trotsky said, the revolution healed Yaffa much better than many years of psychoanalysis. So that was my closing line. And basically, that's the lesson that I was trying to drive home with that essay. Are there specific moments from your life as an activist that stick out? You know, I would just say, you know, life as an activist then was kind of a pattern. You went to your organization meetings, you went to your demonstrations, you wrote your articles, you put them together, you went to larger marches called by other people. And I did a lot of that over the space of 25 years, something like that. In the gay movement, certainly one of the things that stands out to me is the first gay pride march organized in Detroit in, I think, 1972. We did a parade that ended up in Palmer Park at the north end of the city, which is a bit of a gay hangout, and drew attention from the news media. There were television cameras that roved around. I do remember that they picked out this guy in elaborate drag, the full gown, the full bit, and, of course, they asked him first, are you willing to be interviewed? He said, yes. 
So the question came on, you know, tell us your name and where you work. And in this deep bass voice, he said, my name is Charles Johnson and I work at Ford's. So working class gay men in Detroit were proud and assertive in a period when the gay movement was largely student-based and often looked down on working people or had its own class assumptions that working people were either homophobic or tightly in the closet or whatever. I was active in disarmament struggles when I was in college. I was active in the student movement of the time, Students for Democratic Society, in the later 1960s. I was then active in a couple of small revolutionary socialist organizations that lasted up until about 1989, 1990, something around then. The way I got into the gay movement in the first place was that an organization calling itself the Gay Liberation Front was formed on the University of Chicago campus. I thought it would be a good thing to investigate it and possibly join it. On the other hand, I was already a very known quantity on the University of Chicago campus from earlier general activism. So I was quite aware that once I went, I would be sort of typed, and what if I didn't like it, right? So I told all of this to my friend who was also in SDS, and he said, I'll go. Nobody will think I'm a homo. And he did, and uh, came back with a favorable report. So I went to the next meeting. The, the people that I was working with politically knew that I was gay. I mean, I made that plain to them. We had a little organization that in those days communicated through notes that were sent to the central office, mimeographed and sent around to the various locals in, in cities. And I wrote something called, I think, a report on the gay liberation movement, which ended with my saying, I intend to be active in this movement. So, you know, anybody could draw their conclusions from that. And um, I was active to a considerable degree in gay politics over the next 10 years, let's say. A little bit later, I moved to Detroit and worked with a wonderful, wonderful gay alternative paper that existed there called the Detroit Gay Liberator. Was there a need for a gay neighborhood? There were. And, you know, certain districts in San Francisco, the village in New York, and probably, you know, similar areas in most larger cities functioned that way because you needed some place where you could walk around on the street and just be sort of ordinarily gay-friendly with your boyfriend, not anything that was really demonstrative, but just walking around being openly gay and not immediately face negativity. People knew about those areas, and of course, straight men went down to them to do some gay bashing. I can remember in high school, one of the tough boys in the school saying to a friend of his, uh, let's go down to the village and beat up some queers. You know, it was quite open. Not necessarily that he did it, but he could talk about it. Did any of this change after Stonewall? You know, I don't think the atmosphere among straight folks changed for a long time. And oddly enough, 
I think one of the things that really changed the perception of gay people was the AIDS epidemic. When that broke out, and I have a very, very clear memory myself of reading the tiny item in the New York Times that had a headline something like 141 gay, uh, not gay men, they didn't say that, 141 homosexuals diagnosed with a rare cancer. That would have been 1981. When that began, many of us were terribly afraid that there was going to be a horrible backlash, there was going to be major repression, victimization of gay men, and while some of that occurred, very little of it occurred. And what did occur was people began to discover that there was someone in their own family that was dying of a horrible disease, or somebody in a family that they knew very well, or some distant relative. And in an odd way that nobody would have predicted at the time, I think it humanized homosexuals for the majority of people that they lived among. Really weird that, you know, something that, that hurt and destroyed so many people had a side effect or back effect that was decent. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, produced by Media for the Public Good in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. On this edition, Outcaster Travis is talking with Chris Hobson, an English professor and gay elder. Many young people today reject labels like gay, lesbian, man, woman, yet activists fought for these labels to be okay, for gay to be okay. What do you think the gay activists of the 60s and the 70s, even earlier, who fought so hard for the right to be gay and to be proud of it, think of younger generations today that are rejecting these labels and identities? Oh, there are so many parallels here, aren't there? What do older black folks who fought in the movement think about uh, young black kids who don't like to use racial labels? Similar thing. I'm not sure that the issue has any solution. People will define their gender realities in whatever ways they do. We're in an era in which, at least in academic circles, queer is totally fashionable. And queer has perhaps its positive and negative sides. The positive side certainly is the understanding that gender labels are social constructs. Gender label, labels were invented by society and place people in categories that are not necessarily real categories. And yet, on the other hand, it's also true that if gender labels are malleable over many different societies and even within our own societies, identity is not necessarily a bad thing for individuals, is it? People grow up and discover rather than deciding who they are. And I think that's still true of pretty much everybody today. They may discover that they are gender everything, or they may discover that they're gender something. And if they discover that they're gender something, they got to deal with that. And one has to recognize one's own unchosen, unwilled essence. When you deny that, that's when you get into the life of refusing denial and 
neurosis and fear and everything else. When you recognize what is truly yourself, whatever it is, then you're on the way forward. So I'm not sure that there's a necessary war between the older identity politics and the newer gender fluid or queer politics, although people on both sides might present it that way. That attitude seems much more open-minded than I've heard from people of different generations. To be I hope. Honest. It, it is. I've, I've heard people my parents' age who have this very closed idea, despite trying to be open for the idea of gay is okay, lesbian is okay, but the idea of gender being fluid is unfathomable or just doesn't sit right with them, which always strikes me as weird. So do you think members of older generations have something to learn from younger generations? Of course. Good heavens. <laughs> you know, if, if, if not, you would be in, in some kind of intellectual stagnation that lasted for the last 40 years of your life, wouldn't you? And I suppose younger generations have something to learn from the older generations as well. But the world goes on, experience goes on, and so as a natural process, I think the older people learn more from the younger people than the other way around. The movement has lost something in its own development over the years, and it's gained some things. One of the things that it's obviously gained is the right to marriage, and I celebrate that. It has generally lost the idea that we began with of being part of a movement, a larger general movement, that was going to transform society as a whole. But that isn't simply a result of the evolution of the gay movement, but the evolution of every other movement as well. We moved from an era which I think is difficult for people today to imagine, where during the decade of the 1960s, more or less, people lived with a daily reality that everything in the country was up for grabs. The country was changing. The country was changing day by day. It seemed limitless. And the sense that social reality is not something that is tight and given and will always be the same existed at that time and doesn't exist nearly to that extent today. What have you noticed about LGBT students through the years? At the college that I teach at, people are still less open about being LGBTQ than they are about other things. Ours is a completely multicultural campus. We have large portions of African-American students, ethnic, mostly Italians from Long Island, Hispanic students, increasingly numbers of Middle Eastern students, Muslim students, this, that, and the other thing. LGBTQ students are aware that they can get harassed in usually small, petty ways. Somebody calling out something. Somebody tossing a bottle cap at them. That kind of thing doesn't necessarily ruin your life, but it's also annoying and infuriating to deal with. And you prefer not to provoke it, so you don't necessarily walk around being terribly open about who you are. On the other hand, we've had a few things like a drag show 
that was attended by, I would say, 300 undergraduates and was enormously successful. It wasn't great drag. The men couldn't walk like women. The women did much better. But it was a drag show, and the audience was 90% straight, and they loved it. And there have been public rallies of this kind and another kind, and um, walk through campus on, you know, whatever occasion with uh, lots of LGBTQ students, lots of supporting students, LGBTQ faculty, and straight supporting faculty. So, you know, that's all a little bit better than it would have been a few decades ago. Chris, you're the famous homosexual son from the famous homosexual book, Consenting Adult. But it isn't about you. It's about your mother. What was that experience like? There were some painful aspects to that whole thing. My mother was originally quite horrified to find that I was gay. She referred to it at one point as the most terrible tragedy of my life, meaning her life. And... I thought to myself, well, you know, what about my life? And at a certain point, I told her thinking, and this was always quite difficult for us to talk about, my sexuality in general, partly because she was a little bit prurient about it, and she wanted to know, she wasn't going to say this, but she wanted to know what I did, and stuff like that, which I wasn't willing to talk about at all. And then at a certain point, I told her that I was now active in a gay organization, and she took it as her signal that it was fine for her to write about it. And so she did, fictionalizing my life in some ways lightly and in some ways radically. Aside from the mother-centeredness of it, and the mother-centeredness of it, I have to say, is in some sense of affecting social change, which was her motivation in writing the book, was a good choice. First of all, she didn't know enough to base the book on the life of the son. And secondly, she wanted to affect parents like herself. And she wanted to put a tool in the hands of young lesbians and gay men to speak to their parents. And I know from experience that it worked that way for many, 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 many young gay men and women. Men particularly, because the boy in the book is male. So with all of that said, aside from the focus on and the heroization of the mother, the other thing that bothered me somewhat is that the child is turned into a bit of a brainless idiot. And I don't think of myself as a brainless idiot. I find that older writers very often have a difficult time imagining the way teenagers speak and act. Speak particularly. They assume a limited vocabulary. Teenagers do not have a limited vocabulary. You can hear any word that an adult uses within the given educational background of the family. And their thoughts are complicated, even if, if their thoughts are sometimes chaotic, confused, like everybody's thoughts. So when you write dialogue for a teenage character that makes him sound like a Dick and Jane book, 
it's not really good. So those were some of my reactions. And we fought over this book quite a lot. Ultimately, I accepted that she just had to write it. That was what she was going to do. And ultimately, we sort of made peace with each other about it. But we made peace on the basis of putting our differences to the side rather than really resolving them. Do you believe it's very important for LGBTQ history to be in schools since the history of LGBT people can't be passed down like a family history because most people don't have gay relatives? It can't be now. You know, if we can imagine some decades ahead when every family has an LGBTQ person in it who's completely open about that, then it is passed down. You don't have to hide who Uncle Freddy is. Uncle Freddy is completely open about who he is. And then Uncle Freddy talks to his nephew about what it was like when he was young, etc., etc., etc. But admittedly, it's not that way in most families in most parts of the United States and certainly not in many other countries today. So yeah, I think it's terribly important in school. And I think that, you know, there are obvious reasons why LGBTQ history and culture aren't taught in schools. And it goes all the way from an approach by the school boards and by the faculty groups that are designing curricula to emphasize what's held in common between people. We don't like to talk about divisions. And, of course, they're misconceiving homosexuality as a division. The kids in the classroom may be ahead of them on that. And it's also a matter of homophobia among the teachers. The reality is that, particularly among teenagers, everybody has something that is away from the norm. I think tolerance is a very important quality. I don't want to put it down because what it does is to create some space and that's useful. It's important and it's certainly better than intolerance, right? But it has its drawbacks and one of them is that it does it has two drawbacks. One of them is that it does presuppose difference in which what is perceived as tolerant is per perceived as less acceptable. It's just that we should accept it. And the other difference, the other problem that it has is that in perceived crises, it goes right out the window. And I liked what you said, uh, tolerance is, has some superiority attached to it. It's been a fascinating conversation with you, Chris. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been equally fascinating for me, and I'm very glad to have this opportunity to talk to you. Thank you so wonderful. much. That's it for this edition of Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Travis, Alex, Jamie, Callie, Adam, Brianna, Sarah, Drew, Dante, and me, Sharin. 
Our executive producer is Mark Sofus, and our assistant producer is Alex Mintz. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York. More information about Outcasting is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting episodes, and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media. Connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram, at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. I'll say it one more time. 866-488-7386. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting LGBTQ Resources. I'm Sharin. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make your tax-deductible contribution today. We can't do programs like this without your support. To make your donation, please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.